So I was thinking, by the way, hi, Tori. I haven't talked to you in a long time. <laughs> Hello. Voice wise. So it's been a while for sure. I'm Nick, by the way. So yeah, I remember. And we're back. Uh, it's been, yeah, like three and a half months since we talked. So yeah, it feels like a really long time. I was like, how do I set up for a podcast? Like I've never done it in this apartment. So I wasn't even sure like where to set up. It was definitely weird, but yeah, I'm excited to be Yeah, because you back. moved in, you moved in between. <laughs> I um, did. I basically had a nervous breakdown, which is why we had a hiatus. And uh, but now we're back. You know, moving is sort of a nervous breakdown. So. Yeah. So I still have boxes piled everywhere. It's bad. Anyway, well, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> You're living in a new place. I've got a new job. And then maybe getting a new job because I have an interview in like three days. Nice. Um, so, yeah. But, uh, yeah, we're going to bring the podcast back. So. Yay. But there might be some changes. Just a few. Yeah. So we finished releasing all the stuff that we had recorded. And this is our first new recording session. And these are all going to be for our In Search of September, where we're doing In Search for the whole month of September and then October so we can finish the season. And we got some super cool stuff planned for October. Yeah, I'm really excited about that, actually. It's going to be really cool. And then in November, we're going to start back up with The X-Files, where we left off. So we'll be starting with episode 13, aptly titled Never Again. And (laughs) uh, we'll be starting back up with our Millennium. And our Millennium and our In Search of Episodes are going to be just in the main feed. We're not going to do those on subscription or Patreon. Everyone's going to get those. They're actually available for everyone to listen to. I released them when we went on a hiatus. I have noticed that the ones that we released live versus the one that I back released, the back release ones don't have as many listens as the new ones. Mm. And I think that is because since they were had originally been put out on a certain day and when then were just opened up to everybody, they didn't show up in people's feeds. So when you listen to those, you need to go back to the feed and listen to them. So but they are there. They are available. So you can listen to all of In Search yeah. of Season 1 and all of Millennium Season 1, which we will get back to. We have not yet finished, but we will be completing that. Yes. And our plan is to finish, or we're going to finish In Search of by the end of October. And then our plan is to finish X-Files and Millennium by the end of the year. That might be feasible. Um, but if it's not, then we're not going to set ourselves up to fail we'll adjust so mm-hmm. and you mean the yeah. season of x-files and we're not gonna season. try and power through all 11 seasons by december that would because be amazing that would, it would be amazing we would have to have no other jobs no other commitments yeah. and we would both need a personal assistant to like do everything else true yeah like i'd need someone to do the dishes and feed the cats that's what i would need so which is kind of one reason why uh we ended up having a hiatus because i was getting a little overwhelmed and we were to be and i was moving and we were doing a lot and it was great it was very ambitious but sometimes when you get really ambitious you start to notice that you don't have time for other stuff and it starts to just overtake everything and yeah so (laughs) this time we're gonna try and do things in a more reasonable realistic way so that we can keep putting new content out for you and for us and you can still enjoy it but we're not also constantly scrambling to get stuff done (laughs) 
you know. So, yeah. So look for those episodes in the feed and look for more coming in the future. Yeah, we are I think back. really exciting. Yeah, we're back. And I'm really excited. In Search of is really fun. The stuff we have for October is going to be amazing. And then when we do get back to X-Files and Millennium, I think that's going to be really fun, too. So we hope you'll stick with us and we hope you'll enjoy it as well. Yeah. And today's topic is someone who also disappeared for a while. Um, actually, a long while because they never reappeared. So mm, let's yeah. get to it. All right. This is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files adjacent podcast. In Search of. Amelia Earhart. This episode was written and produced by Alex Pomazanoff. Whose name is actually Alex Pomazanoff? I don't know if we mentioned this in previous episodes that he did. But his name is spelt wrong on the In Search of credits. It's spelled P-O-M-A-S-A-N-O-F-F. And his actual last name is spelled P-O-M-A-N-S-A-N-O-F. So they missed a letter and they doubled a letter. So, yeah. That's so funny. I don't recall if we mentioned that in the past episodes or not. So I don't know if we did. I can understand the O-F being an O-F-F because if it's... Like translated from Russian, that sometimes gets translated with a V or with two Fs or one F. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. But the missing the N in there is also just really weird. Yeah, so it's to go just from really Pomaz to Pomans. Yeah. 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 I don't know. It was directed by H.G. Stark. And it was edited by Art Stafford with assistance by Jack Dunsmore and John Schwartz. And possibly all or one of them may have been drunk. Um, <laughs> we'll get on that shortly. So, This series is hosted and narrated by Leonard Nimoy. And this episode originally aired on Wednesday, June 1st, 1977. Because in search of Wednesdays, woo! Um, which is <laughs> ironic because this episode is actually coming out on Saturday, September 10th, which is X-Files Day. Yay! as part of our In Search of September. So it's actually kind of a fitting day for us to come back with recordings because this actually comes out on X-Files Day. Yeah. Second anniversary of when we started the podcast. Weird. It's good timing. We keep having great timing for things. Yeah, even when when we take unexpected time off, our timing is impeccable. It's true. It's true. Yes. So then, as we normally do, we come in with Leonard Nimoy's narration. Now, nearly 40 years after Amelia Earhart's disappearance, there are surprising new theories to explore. And then we get the title card that says, In Search of Amelia Earhart, which we usually don't get right here. Uh And then he comes back to narration and it says, In the early morning of July 2nd, 1937, Amelia Earhart and her navigator are bound westward over the lonely mid-Pacific. It is the final leg of a grueling round-the-world flight. Within several hours, they will disappear. Dun, 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 dun. So we get the normal opening credits now, which is soothing. Okay, that was fine. And then he comes back for his mid-credit narration, (laughs) wherein he says, Now, nearly 40 years after Amelia Earhart's disappearance, there are surprising new theories to explore. And then we get the title card that says, In Search of Amelia Earhart, that we got before. (laughs) So... Tori was like, he said it twice. And 
I am pretty sure this is 100% an editing error because it's the exact same dialogue, exact same mm-hmm. everything. It's the same audio. Like, it's exactly the same. There's no change. Yeah, and the same video. So what I don't know was whether this error was on the original airing or if this is a DVD error. That mm-hmm. I don't know. So they may not have been drunk or they may have been drunk. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe the DVD producers were drunk. Don't know. But, yeah, this is definitely an editing thing because the normal when he comes in with the early morning of – that is how the episodes usually start because we're getting footage of Amelia Hart getting in her plane and his narration. So, yeah, it was funny too because when I was transcribing it, I like he got to that part and I'm like, didn't he just say that? And I scrolled up and I'm like, that's exactly what I already wrote. And so then I had to go back and make sure that I hadn't like accidentally started it at the wrong place and like written that and then I don't know, gotten distracted. And but no, he does say it twice. So, yeah, and I was really thrown for a loop because he does that little bit and then we get that title card which is not standard operating procedure. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what the heck are they doing? But yeah, so I think they just they just replayed that bit by accident. <laughs> so, just don't know at what point that it was an accident. So yeah. So then our credits recontinue. Do, do, do. We get our in search of Amelia Hart thing. And then we get our theory and conjecture caveat. And as we talked about, Alex Pomanzanoff has written other episodes. And I'm hoping that Amelia Hart episode is better than Killer Bees or Earthquakes. So, yeah, I hope so, too. Although I have to admit, I'm coming into this. Amelia Earhart never really was my jam. Like, mm-hmm. it never interested in me, really. Um, she didn't jump out of a plane with a bunch of money or anything. So it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, she crashed. We know what or happened. Did she crashed. She? So well, ooh, maybe, maybe, maybe she was D.B. Cooper. Maybe. All right. Well, maybe we'll find out. <laughs> <I'll take. laughs> So the episode opens and we learn that it's 1932 and we see huge crowds and in the crowds there's men wearing those barbershop quartet hats that were all the rage at the time. And we hear that Amelia Earhart returns home triumphantly against incredible odds. She's the first woman to fly over the Atlantic Ocean to Ireland. And then we see her and she's holding this giant bouquet and then she's sitting in the back of a car and she's waving and they're doing this makeshift parade. And we're told that her courage has caught the heart and imagination of the whole world. And then we see Amelia and she's standing in a podium and she says that it's so much easier to fly over the Atlantic now than it was even just a few years ago. And she imagines that in her lifetime, there will be regular transatlantic flight service. Um, maybe bad choice of words. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if she had lived to her right normal yeah. expected age, that probably would have come true. But unfortunately, yeah. that is not what happens. And then we get footage of her climbing into an auto gyro, which she actually set an altitude record in. And I don't know what the difference between an auto gyro and a helicopter is, except for it's basically a plane with a propeller on the top instead of in the front. It's weird. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know either. Maybe they were more popular in the 1930s. It like like does runway stuff and then flies up, but it's basically a helicopter. So I'm not sure what's going on, but yeah. And then we see another plane and we're told she's aloft again to capture a woman's transcontinental speed record. And then afterwards, there's a press conference and one of the reporters asks what she brought with her. And she says that she brought some water, some hot chocolate, which I guess was in a thermos. But for a minute, I was trying to picture her making hot chocolate in this plane. And I got very confused. But then I realized she probably just had a thermos of hot chocolate. That's fine. She also took tomato juice and a sandwich, which she didn't eat. 
and they ask like oh what kind of sandwich and she laughs and she's like it was chicken so yeah there's a guy behind her who keeps looking into the camera and he is frightening he looks like eddie like if eddie munster grew up and was wearing a white t-shirt and a straw hat he's very creepy his eyes keep darting back and forth between like looking at the camera <laughs> looking away like he knows he's not supposed to look at the camera and he's got these eyebrows that make groucho marx's mustache look like vincent price's mustache they are humongous anyway he's really creepy because he has a really creepy smile too and just disturbing <laughs> so. i did not notice i'll have to go back and look And then in 1935, she and her husband, publisher George Putnam, sailed to Hawaii. And people were kind of curious because she brought her plane along on the boat. But then later, the public learns why. Because she flew it home, becoming the first pilot to solo from Hawaii to California. Wow. Yeah. Not even the first female pilot, but the first pilot. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's pretty cool. And then soon, she announces plans to fly around the world. In another press conference, she says the planned course covers over 27,000 miles. If successful, it'll be the first flight which approximates the equator. And the plane she plans to use is a Lockheed Electra, which can carry up to 10 passengers and two pilots. So it's a pretty sizable plane. Mm Mm-hmm. And then there's a few days before the flight and she's interviewed sitting beside her husband. And she says, like, her husband's like, why are you doing it? And she's like, you know why? Because I want to. And then he kind of talks about how, like, she also wants to set records and, you know, do stuff like that. And then they kind of joke about her taking him along. And she's like, well, you know, I'd actually prefer 180 pounds of gasoline to 180 pounds of husband because the gas will be more useful. So I thought that was kind of cute. Yeah, she calls him GP. She's like, uh-huh. "Well, GP," and and, <laughs> and, uh, and this was obviously a scripted little interview thing. You can tell they're yeah. like doing lines, but it it still was very cute. Yes, it was. So it was cute, yeah. and I don't know. Like, I'm sure I have seen specials on History Channel about Amelia Earhart before, but I didn't realize how much footage we have of her just like talking. And it's mm-hmm. pretty good footage. It's not like grainy or what. I mean, you know, I don't know. I guess I always think of it's the 1930s. Funny you say that because <laughs> I was talking to my wife about Amelia Earhart right uh-huh. before we started recording and talking about like she was doing an interview. And she's like, oh, we have. I didn't realize there were like interviews of her. And then she was like, oh, of course there would be. And I was like, yeah, because like when she would finish stuff, she'd have interviews and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So there's a lot of footage of her. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes sense. But it's one of those things where I guess I just don't think of the 1930s as having that much video i don't know why i don't think i just don't and so i don't know well technically they didn't have any video but they did have film okay yes (laughs) (laughs) but you know i just it's weird i just didn't imagine that there was that much footage of her just speaking and yeah there is there's a lot so it's cool then nimoy tells us it's a rainy june morning in 1937 and they're making final preparations and we see some of the footage of the final preparations They don't say this in the episode, but for her final flight, she actually took off on June 1st, which is also the same day this episode aired, interestingly enough. And she took off from Miami. So that's where her flight started. And we're told for the next 40 days, she and her navigator, Fred Noonan, will fly three quarters of the way around the world. And then we see footage of them both getting into the plane and the plane taking off. Which is interesting, I guess, because of the path they were taking to make sure they would always have some place to refuel. Mm-hmm. Because if she left in Miami, the 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 trip was supposed to end in California, uh-huh. which is like 3,000 miles short, roughly, right? But I guess uh-huh. because 
of the not straight path they were taking, it made up for the difference. Yeah, I think that's it. So, and then Nimoy says, on the final leg of the flight, with little more than 7,000 miles to go, she will vanish over the mid Pacific without a trace. And then it kind of cuts to like after she's vanished, and it just says, the world reacts with shock and horror that she's vanished. And she was mere days away from completing her flight when she disappeared. And almost immediately, the public imagination was sparked and rumors began circulating that Amelia and Fred were alive and well, or that they were shot down by the Japanese and captured, or that they had actually been on a top secret spy mission for the government. Yeah. And everyone always says it's the final leg or whatever of the flight. But then here they tell you like she was days away. It was actually the third to last because they were where they were going to refuel they would be stopping and then the next stop would be Honolulu to refuel and then they would have gotten in California so they actually had like you know had a little ways to go for sure yeah so they weren't like technically on the last leg but anyway yeah I'm a pedant so <laughs> well, I think it just sounds more like tragic like yeah. they were on the last leg they and they almost, almost there. made it you know yeah which is true. I mean, you know, three days versus like 40 days. Yeah, but still. Yeah. Five years after her disappearance, there's a Hollywood film made about a pilot who's based on Earhart. The pilot in the movie is named Tony Carter. And Tony Carter is conscripted into a spy mission. The plan is that she will deliberately ditch on a small island where they left food and provisions. And then they will use the search for her as cover to explore all these small Japanese islands and take photographs and figure out what the Japanese are up to so that they can be prepared for future war. Yeah, I think it's kind of hilarious. There's two things that are interesting about this. One is that in the film, the American general or admiral or whoever he's supposed to be, he has a British accent. (laughs) <laughs> which is kind of funny. And then also it should be noticed that this film that stars Rosalind Russell is called flight for freedom was made in 1943. So it was produced during world war two. And after the U S entered the war, which obviously followed the attack on Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. So of course we'd be like interested in Japanese stuff at that time. Right. However, at the time of Earhart's disappearance, Japanese ships actually assisted the Navy with the search for her. Right. Name. So there wasn't really like, I mean, the Japanese were up to some shit in 1937, but not really shit that the U.S. was at least officially interested in. So, yeah, it's kind of silly. And then in the movie, the pilot learns that the Japanese actually know of the plan. And so she intentionally crashes into the ocean and dies, which is a really sad yeah. ending anyway. So um, unfortunately, probably what happened to me <laughs> here, not the intentional not, not for those crashing, reasons, probably, but, but yeah. yeah, yeah. Crashing into the ocean. And then we meet retired Air Force Major Joseph Jervis, and he's spent almost 20 years researching Amelia Earhart's disappearance. He says her last flight was actually a military flight, and the intention was to photograph some of the Atoll Islands of Japan and then return and present those photos as proof that Japan was in violation of a treaty. He contends that the Japanese shot her down and she made a crash landing on Hull Island. And this is based on his interpretation of a bunch of civilian radio directional reports that happened at the time of her last flight and like when she went missing. 
He also finds a Japanese soldier who reports that a female pilot was captured, interrogated, and then taken as a captive to Japan. He claims she was held in the Imperial Palace for eight years, and then she was secretly removed, disguised as a nun, two weeks before Patton invaded Japan, and now lives in New Jersey. Whoa. Which, that's quite the plot there. <laughs> it's a better movie than the one we just described. Like nuns on the run. And he has tons of photos of Amelia from the time she was a child till the time of her disappearance. And he was giving this talk. And as like after he gave this talk, he met this woman and her husband. The woman is Irene Bolum. And when he met her, he looked at her and he decided that she was Amelia Earhart. Like she just looked so much like her. And I just think it's the funniest thing in the world. Like this woman came to his talk and is just like, all of a sudden her life is turned upside down because he's accusing her of being Amelia Earhart in disguise. And Bolum is understandably irritated by the accusation and actually has to give a press conference where she says that it's utter nonsense and she is not Amelia Earhart, but he is convinced still. Yeah. I personally think that Jervis is, has a weird crush on Amelia Earhart and also that he's creepy as fuck. Cause the way he talks, like he's like, I've got, thousands of photos of her from when she was a baby to when she was in school and high school and and i know her better than i know my own mother and like didn't other things he says too it's like dude you are it's weird and it's kind of like the the most intense version of those people who try to insert themselves in like true crime investigations where you're like you don't actually know this person you need to back off yeah but i do think he has like a crush or something oh yeah yeah it's just, I can't imagine being Irene Bolum and having someone come up to you and be like, I know who you are. You're actually Amelia Earhart. And you know you're not Amelia Earhart. Like, you're well aware that that's not possible. Yeah, because you're, like, about the same age. You have, so, like, yeah. short hair. And so you're Amelia Earhart. Like, I don't know. Her teeth <laughs> are not the same. Her voice is not the same. Although, honestly, at the time, someone of that age, at that time period, those teeth are probably false. They look like they're probably false teeth. But, yeah, the teeth are completely different. So, and the voices differently. I mean, I guess if you were posing to someone, you would probably try and change the way you talked, but. Yeah, yeah it's just, man, I can't imagine. That must have been really. Yeah, I think there's something, I think I think there's something going on with Jervis. Um, <laughs> and yeah, he's, yeah, I think he maybe touches some of those photos a little too often than he should. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. However, Jervis is not alone in his search. Two independent researchers believe the final answer is now very close at hand. The final leg, which we've already discussed was not the final leg, of Earhart's flight was over the Pacific. Well, I guess that part is true. It would have been. And was the longest and most dangerous. They were to refuel at the remote Howland Island, an American atoll frequently used for that purpose. The U.S. Coast Guard cutter Itasca was stationed there to provide radio assistance. And also they supported the population who were on that island. So they were like always there doing stuff, bringing in cargo and that kind of thing. And on the morning of July 2nd, Earhart radioed that she was low on fuel and in the vicinity of Howland, but that they could not see the island. So, Captain Elgin Long, a world record-holding pilot and navigator, has studied a lot of information about Amelia Earhart's last flight, including the fuel consumption of the plane, the strength of the radio signals received by the Itasca, and the effect of crosswinds on the flight that Earhart was likely unaware of. This is according to him. She likely was probably aware of them, as was her navigator, because he was like a super experienced navigator. Right. mm, I'm not sure about that. Anyway, 
Long says nothing went wrong until they radioed that they believed they were over Howland but could not see it. He does not believe there was any single mistake that was made to make them miss the island, but rather a series of small errors that compounded towards the same result. And then when they couldn't find the island, they circled for over an hour trying to locate it until they exhausted their fuel. That actually makes the most sense to me that they would have a couple small mistakes in their navigation. I mean, it happens and then all of a sudden you're in the wrong place. You don't have enough fuel to get where you need to go. Well, apparently Howland was a little bit off on the map that they had. Oh, okay. But not by so much that they wouldn't have been able to see it. Right. So it wasn't like on their map, it wasn't where it really was. It was off by, I think, a couple miles, but they still would have had visual contact if they had been there. So it wasn't like a deal breaker that they wouldn't be able to find it. Mm -hmm. So Long believes he has pinpointed the exact location where they would have crashed into the sea, which is kind of impressive if he's done that because the ocean is pretty big. Mm -hmm. 40 miles northwest of Howland Island, where the ocean is over three miles deep. He believes the plane is perfectly preserved in the deep abyss. And he is super pleased with himself and has a really creepy smile. And says that once they get together the deep sea search equipment needed, they will conclude the search for Amelia Earhart. So that's good. That'd be cool. Yeah. When Amelia Earhart was lost, a frantic search was done and began immediately. Newsreels portray the largest naval sea hunt of its kind in history. 63 planes scouted the Pacific and included more than a dozen surface vessels. In three weeks, 250,000 square miles of oceans were scanned, but there was no sign of Amelia Earhart. Then we meet newsman Fred Gurner. He believes the Navy missed Earhart's location by only a few miles. He says that had they searched in the right location, she might be with us today, or at least like in 1976-77. He has spent 16 years investigating the disappearance of Amelia Earhart, and believes that she survived the crash based on his own analysis of civilian and military radio reports, much like Jervis did. Mm-hmm. So, and then we get B-roll of Gurner looking through papers at his desk and then looking like super serious and determined. <laughs> and it is hilarious. It's probably the worst acting I've ever seen in my life. And it makes the guy who like had to reenact how he ran from a Bigfoot like an Academy Award winner. <laughs> it was like, I'm almost thinking the film crew was fucking with him because he seems like kind of a dick and they probably like intentionally made him do that just so he would look like an idiot on the film. <laughs> so I, I can't really, I don't know so for like, sure. Pretend but... you're in deep thought and he just- Yeah, because it's ridiculous. He's got like, he puts like his hand on his chin is all- Yeah. Mm, it's ridiculous. So, yeah. So the radio reports were painstakingly recovered by Gurner himself during several trips to Washington, D.C., But his search did not begin in Washington. He tells us it began at CBS, where he was the correspondent in San Francisco. He was sent to Saipan Island, 1,500 miles northwest of Howland Island. There, he spoke to a former prisoner of the occupying Japanese army who told him of a white woman that was kept in a cell next to him. And he also spoke to a grocer on Saipan who recalls seeing a white woman on the second floor of a hotel several times. He heard that she was a captured pilot and a spy. And an American woman was reportedly buried in a cemetery sometime in 1937. I don't know if this is the same prisoner that Jervis apparently talked to. I don't know, because these stories are rather similar. So Yeah, they really are. But also, like, 
I, I just, I mean, one, they could be completely not true. And even if they are true, it could have been someone completely different. Like, yes, yeah, it yeah. could. <laughs> Amelia Earhart was not the only white woman on the planet in 1937. No. <laughs> well, plus, like, <laughs> yeah, it just, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, I mean, I guess it's possible, but. Yeah. Mm, I, th- mm. I think there's a little bit of inherent racism in this, assuming that, like, oh, these people would have never seen a white person before, kind of thing. It's just kind <laughs> of like, mm, yeah. So, anyway, Gurner excavated several grave sites, but found no proof. He believes the witness reports and that it is impossible. Anyone else matching the description could have been on the island at that time. So again, we can okay, like, yeah, whatever, buddy. So, yeah, he also has a framed newspaper front page on his wall that reads "Amelia Earhart mystery is solved," which clearly not my dude because you're doing this interview about how we haven't figured out what's going on yet. So yeah, I don't know <laughs> if that's probably maybe his story that was done in the newspaper. I'm assuming it probably was because why else would it probably was? Story? <laughs> yeah. Gurner also found a Japanese newspaper that had stories about Amelia Earhart, including one that says she was picked up by a Japanese fishing boat. He also learned of secret government documents that prove the capture of Amelia Earhart by the Japanese government. He believes she was picked up after the Navy's failed search by a Japanese fishing boat, turned over to the Japanese government, who imprisoned her for espionage, and she died in their custody. Then he gets in a dig at Jervis and he says, Alas, Amelia Earhart is not alive and well and living in New Jersey. I wish that she were. I mean, I wish she were too, but I'm sure that like poor Miss like Irene Bolham is like, you guys need to stop. You need to stop. I'm not I'm not trying to claim this. I don't want this. Please stop. Yeah. And then we're soaring through sepia-colored clouds, and we get Leonard Nimoy's narration. At least in some sense, Amelia Earhart is alive. For in the memory of her courage, her passion, her dedication to an ideal, she still touches many of us. And then we're in the studio with Ellen, and I call him Ellen because we're cool like that. And he continues his narration. It has been 40 years since Amelia Earhart vanished. The final answer to her disappearance is still an enigma. There's a vast amount of convincing, yet sometimes contradictory, evidence which can support any one of several explanations. But who is right? For at least three men, the search for the answer will continue. Well, except the one who has the answer in an article he wrote and is yeah. convinced it's correct. But that's well, I fine. think they all have the answer. They just <laughs> haven't got the physical proof yet. So That's true. That's yeah. True. It will go on until someone proves without the slightest doubt the final fate of this daring and charismatic woman. Before the takeoff on her last flight, Amelia wrote to her husband. Please know that I'm quite aware of the hazards. I want to do it because I want to do it. Women must try to do things as men have tried. When they fail, their failure must be but a challenge to others. Dun, 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 dun. Show's over. Closing credits. Yep. So that's it. (laughs) So I have never been obsessed with Amelia Earhart, but I did always find it kind of curious. And it was one of those things that would be like on Unsolved Mysteries or those kinds of shows. And you're always like, oh, sad. Like, I wonder what happened. Uh, We'll probably never know unless we do actually find her plane at the bottom of the ocean and their bodies are still in it. That would be. 
I mean, a pretty good way to solve it. But I think we pretty happened. much know. Yeah. Yeah, we just don't know the like. Exact we don't know the details of their final moments. Like, did they die in the crash? Or are they at the bottom of the ocean? Did they make it to some kind of island and die there? We don't know. But they definitely did not, unfortunately live very long if they did survive the initial crash and they weren't found yeah. so and there aren't really any other islands in the general area that they would have even been able to get close to so right if they had shown up on an island it would have been howland so yeah so just some stuff that has come up more recently about amelia Earhart since this episode aired in 1977 in 2017 history channel aired a special called amelia Earhart: the lost evidence and it included a photo that supposedly showed Earhart and Noonan on a dock in the Marshall Islands in 1937. And if you look at the photo, it is the least convincing photo I have ever seen. And I think I remember it being passed around Twitter and thinking, really, that's their proof? Because I remember when this was like the hot thing for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. And I was like, mm, I don't know. Well, I know the uh, next part you're going to talk about was a big thing on Twitter. Yes. I don't know if the original was, but yeah. I think when it aired, everyone was like passing the photo around going, oh, is this Amelia Earhart? And I was like, no. <laughs> but I think it was in the, the no that you're going to get to. Yeah, what, what, yeah, what's going probably, on. yeah. Probably. So in the photo, the person who's supposed to be Amelia has their back to the camera and is sitting on the dock. And you really can't make out anything like it could be anyone it could be a man a woman like it's very grainy and you don't see anything and then fred is supposedly standing off to the side and he is even harder to make out i can't even really figure out like where like what his body position is supposed to be in that photo like it's just such a weird photo he's like behind stuff anyway it's weird so the photo is super blurry neither person's really identifiable like pretty much immediately after it aired a lot of people were like mm, don't think so but Koto Yamano, a Japanese military history blogger, was super skeptical, along with many other people. And he managed to find a copy of the same photograph in a 1935 Japanese book. So the photo was obviously taken before Earhart even disappeared. And he was like, I don't know why they wouldn't ask someone with the knowledge of Japanese culture or publishing or anything to try and look at this photo and see if i don't know anything so yeah yeah just and like, that i know for sure is what went out on twitter was him finding that photo and showing that the book existed mm -hmm. was published in 1935 i don't i mean i don't think they know actually when the photo was taken because yeah. it's a book about that island it's like a tourism book sort of and so but it obviously existed before 1935 i did read that all the people who were super into it being amelia Earhart, even after his evidence came out they were still like well that doesn't mean it's not amelia Earhart. she could have just been there before so maybe it's not what? proof that she was there afterwards and people were all, and then they were like no it wasn't her because she's super famous and we know where she was at all times before she died and so she never was in that area so it wasn't her. But they were not going to let go of the fact that, like, no, it is Amelia Earhart, even if it's not proof oh that she was gosh. there after she disappeared. It, she was obviously still in that, that. That is still her in the photo. Like, they were just, like, double down. Boom. It's so funny because it's like if you spend, which I don't do a lot of true crime stuff anymore. I definitely got super burned out on it. But there are certain disappearance cases where people do the same stuff and they, like, will commit to, no, this is proof that this person was in this location at this, mm -hmm. no matter how much evidence you throw at them that that is not 
true or like you find the yeah. actual whatever and they just will not let it go because this was their one discovery and they're so sure yeah, and so they're like, like well the date was wrong but it's still her and they're like, no like, dude. why <laughs> why would she be there anyway no it's not and it's such a weird like it doesn't even look like her you can't even see anything anyway it's a slim person with short hair and you see them from yep. behind. It's you like, see their okay. Back. That's it. Yeah. I mean, it could and it does, like it, it does look like it's probably a woman just based on build, but it could be a slender dude. You don't know. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's just, yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And then there were bones found on this island called Nikumaroro in 1940. And the bones were found near the remains of a campfire. And so they were sent to experts in Fiji. And the experts in Fiji decided that they belonged to a male. And those bones were actually lost. So we no longer have them, but I guess we have like photos and descriptions of them or something. Mm -hmm. And so in March of 2018, there was a forensic study done on them and it was published. And Richard Jantz, a forensic anthropologist at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, analyzed those measurements as well as Earhart's body dimensions as indicated by photographs and articles of clothing. He thinks that the evidence strongly supports the conclusion that the Niku Mororo bones belong to Amelia Earhart. But at the very least, that possibility can't be excluded. So they could have been hers. Unfortunately, we don't even have the bones anymore. So if those were her remains or the remains of Fred or the remains of some random other person, like we don't have them and we'll just never conclusively know. Yeah. And we should specify the bones in question. They determine the gender based on the pelvis. So Mm -hmm. slightly I mean, still, there is still some leeway in there, but that is a more possible indicator of male, female than like just if it was an arm or a leg or something. Yes. So, yeah. It's not conclusive, but it is more possible. So, yeah. If you've read the Kathy Riggs Temperance Brennan books, you know all about that. Yeah. And then this is something that I'd actually heard before, and I cannot remember where I heard it, but I remember, I think it was a podcast. It might have been Lizard People. Well, I think it's actually related to the uh, Nikomoro Island as well. It is. Yeah. Yeah. But basically someone, they were talking about Amelia Earhart and one of the people was like, wasn't she eaten by giant carnivorous crabs? And I was like, what? And the person was like, yeah, no, I heard that's what happened. And like was very adamant that that was true. So I looked it up. Nikamaroro Island does have coconut crabs. So if they had landed on this island, stick with me here. These coconut crabs are the largest arthropods in the world. They can grow as large as three feet. So like a meter big, which is huge for a crab. I mean, that's that's gigantic. That's I like remember seeing a photo of one on the side of a garbage can. And uh-huh. A whole garbage can. <laughs> yeah. You can Google them. They're huge and they're yeah. pretty cool looking. They mainly eat fruit, nuts, and the pith of local trees, but they will eat carrion opportunistically. So if there are dead animals around and they've been known to eat like small animals too, like if mm-hmm. they're really desperate. So it happens. They eat meat. They're also called robber crabs because apparently they tend to steal things. So like if you leave like a bottle on the ground, they'll come by and just like take it, which I think is hilarious. They seem pretty cool, actually. They don't even reach their full size for like 40 to 60 years and they can live like over like 120. I don't even know. I couldn't even get a full lifespan on them. They can live a very long time. So pretty cool creatures. But it does sound like they're largely afraid of people and don't generally attack. So, like, I've heard people say, like, Amelia Earhart was killed and eaten alive by crabs. I don't think that's true. If for some reason Amelia and Fred did get to Nikamaroro Island and land there and then they died, 
it's possible that the crabs may have aided in the predation of their remains and maybe scattered their bones and made it less possible we'll ever find them. But they did not like attack and kill them, probably. <laughs> so anyway, I just thought that was interesting. Wanted to look into these giant carnivorous crabs. And there you go. Yeah, Cut I had heard crabs. the crab story. But I think in my head, I think I was because of, you know, about Christmas Island and all the crabs on Christmas Island. Mm-hmm. And so I was I had associated with that, which are just normal sized crabs, but there's like a gazillion of them. And so I was thinking mm-hmm. it was that. But You're it was probably like Yeah, I had probably heard the crabs. coconut crabs, but it was just islands crabs, Christmas Island. So <laughs> yeah. Where all the lost toys live. So yeah. crabs don't eat them. Yeah. So yeah, so there's lots of theories. And sadly, like the one that you just mentioned about the, you know, the guy doing the bones, like that was on like National Geographic. It's like, come on, National Geographic. It's bad enough the History Channel like went that direction. Now National Yeah. Well, that was the time that was when they were doing all those like in search of Bigfoot and in search of what and they were producing these documentaries that had really like, I don't even want to call it evidence, like really tenuous anecdotes about like these like monsters and creatures and stuff so i think they were just really going for ratings at that point yeah i listened to the uh well because i listened to skeptoid and i re-listened to the episodes he's had on amelia Earhart, and in one of them and i have links to them in the show notes and i'm going to bring up some stuff from one of them in a little bit but he mentioned the history channel one where they had the photo when he was talking about that he also mentioned that the history channel when they did their like the search for Hitler or whatever it was one special, I mean, they probably done a gazillion of those. Right. But it was like Hitler lived. They used a photo that was supposedly old man, Hitler. It was Mo Howard from the three stooges. Oh my God. They just flipped it, but even flipped like he has, he has a picture of it on the, on the transcript for the episode. And like, you look at it, you're like, dude, that's Mo Howard with white hair. Cause he's old. Like, <laughs> like I'm sorry. Like I watched the three stooges. I know the three stooges. Maybe most people don't, but like you see that even when it flipped, you're like, that's Mo Howard. Like that's not, but yeah, I don't. Ugh, I don't understand what. Yeah, the like mm. don't check anything. Apparently, so apparently not. They just put whatever they want on TV because ratings. Yeah. So Amelia Earhart was the sixteenth woman to earn a pilot's license. So there were fifteen women before her that got pilot's license. But she was certainly the most famous, mm-hmm. and none of that is to take away from her accomplishment and the fame she earned. But as I mentioned, like she never really like it was like you know the plane crashed like that thing. She was Amelia Hart was never a thing for me. But I do have another story of a woman who earned a pilot's license, one that Amelia Earhart may have actually partially inspired, and it is a story of a woman that I had the pleasure of getting to know for at least a short while before she passed from this world, and the story also involves a plane crash Hmm. so i'm going to read an article about the plane crash and then i will tell you the story of this person that i know so it's a very short article um this does use names i am not going to use names i'm going to use initials because this person has passed and i don't have their permission to use their name so i'm not going to do that so this article is from december 1948 mrs d e was on her first solo cross country as she flew out of Fresno on the return trip to Delano via Porterville, the weather was fine. The cub floated along on a true course, and she dropped down at Porterville. Unknown to her, she was supposed to receive a message at the Foothills town, but it was never passed on, and she took off and headed for Delano. 
As she approached home, there was a dark grayish-brown cloud in the distance which thickened as she approached. Suddenly, she found herself surrounded by the swirling dirt of last Thursday's heavy dust storm. She banked around in the air of dirt and headed for her brother-in-law's ranch, T.E.'s place, north of the Sellers Ranch. There, E. has his own strip for his Cessna. Mrs. E. set the cub down, breathed a sigh of relief. The message that was not given her at Porterville was to remain in Porterville. No visibility in Delano. So this kind of just says she touched down from people who know her. The story is she actually, it it was kind of a crash. She landed in a cotton field. So, oh, okay. um, Yeah, because, you know, going down. So um, they say Mrs. D.E., that's actually her husband's name, D.E. So, Mm. because it's 1948. So, of course, they aren't going to use her name. So, anyway, uh, this woman is my wife's grandmother on her paternal side. So I got the pleasure of knowing her. So here's the story. So in the area of California, this is Central California. If you hadn't guessed by mm-hmm. the, you guys heard me talk about Fresno a lot on the last <laughs> X-Files episode. So, uh, so at that time, because of World War II, a lot of land was turned into airstrips for planes because we might have to defend against Japan, right? If Japan were to have a land invasion of the United States, we were going to need, we we're going to need aircraft to stop it. Right. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of airfields built up. And then after the war, when they were no longer needed for war, um, they were still there. And so lots of people were getting pilot's license because the fields were there, right? You could get pilot's right. license. Right. That makes sense. So she wanted to get her pilot's license. And her husband, my wife's grandfather, was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll we'll get to that. Um, you know, I want to get mine first, and then you know, eventually we'll let you get yours. So, and this was at the time when the way things were set up, like they had a business, and she basically worked for him to like help run the business, and so she was kind of given an allowance to run the house, but he controlled all the money. So she squirreled money away, and like you know, bought like you know, slightly cheaper things around the house, and you know, still. But things that wouldn't be noticeable, like for, you know, dinner, just make sure you're buying like the lowest price items you could, that kind of thing. And so squirreled money away and then secretly went and got her pilot's license, filled out her logbook, everything, got her pilot's oh, license. nice. That's cool. And then they went to the airport because they had friends, you know, as it mentioned in the in the story, like, you know, relatives had planes and that kind of stuff. So they went to the airport and she was like, we should just go get in one of those planes and just fly around a little bit. And this was before he had gotten his license as well. And he was like, no, no, we can't do that. And she was like, no, no, let's go. And he's like, you need to stop. Like, we're going to get in trouble. And she's like, no, we can totally do this. And whipped out her logbook, showed that she had logged all the hours and had her pilot's license. And oh, so, my gosh. Yeah. So that's awesome. And, um, I put a badass. photo. I put a photo of her near her plane in the show notes for Tori to see. Um, and, you know, I don't know that's that I'll put awesome. that out for the listeners to look at. But that is my wife's grandmother. In so her cool outfit. That's really yep. cool. And her plane. Good for her. So, yep, she was. Uh, she was an amazing woman. I only got to know her for a little while before she passed away. Um, yeah. So. Well, she sounds amazing. I would have loved to meet her. So yep. And then on Skeptoid, the most recent episode he did on Amelia Hart was mainly based on the harm that all this false history stuff has actually done to her legacy. Okay, been, that's interesting. You know, 
Yeah, I mean, his big, you can kind of tell in the original episode, and then he's had like little updates as well. I only folk, I only gave links to the two main episodes he's done, but he usually does like, like update episodes where he'll hit several topics that where there's new information or corrections or that kind of thing. So he's had a few other ones on her too, but these are the two main ones. And like, again, there's links in the show notes, but at the end of the most recent one, um, I'm just going to read a little bit of what he says in the transcript. So the image we have of her today is profoundly clouded by the false histories and conspiracy theories cloaked upon her by these television networks. They do a great disservice, not only to her memory and to her legacy, but to today's young women who she might otherwise be inspiring. Amelia Earhart was 39 years old. She served as a nurse during World War I and was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross and held numerous speed, solo, and nonstop flight records. So. Yeah. Which is true. I mean, when you think about Amelia Earhart, you don't think about all, a lot of the stuff maybe that she accomplished and how she was a role model to women and girls you think more about all the conspiracies like, Oh, did she get eaten by crabs? Was she captured by the (laughs) Japanese? You know? So, so he's not wrong. No, he's not. That's 100% true. Interestingly. So she disappeared just a little more than two weeks before it would have been her 40th birthday. So she was 39. Oh man. But she technically did not die until she was 41 because she was not declared dead until January 5th, 1939. When she was 41. So it's kind of weird. So like her actual death is recorded as 41, even though she disappeared when she was 39. Right. And probably died when she was 39. Oh, undoubtedly. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. There have been several films about Amelia Earhart, including one in 2009 starring and co-produced by Hilary Swank. But you guys know me and TV movies. So (laughs) Amelia Earhart, The Final Flight in 1994 starred Diane Keaton, Rudger Howard, and Bruce Dern, and was originally released as a TV movie and then subsequently re-released as a theatrical feature. Okay. When I saw that in the list, I saw Dern's name, and I thought it was Laura Dern, and I was super excited because I thought we were going to have a Jurassic Park connection. But, <laughs> I mean, I guess we still do in a way, right? Because, I mean, sort of. You know, Dern, so, yeah. yeah. And in a 2020 comic, Wonder Woman relates how in the 1930s, a female pilot crashed on Themyscira and chose to remain there permanently. The story does not give her name, but she was accompanied by a navigator named Fred who didn't survive the crash. Mm. (laughs) And then sticking with DC, an episode of Legends of Tomorrow, Earhart is shown to be currently the lone survivor on an alien planet now possessed by an extraterrestrial. So that huh. sentence is weird because I assume that she's possessed and not the planet, but the way it's written, it sounds like the planet's possessed, but I don't know. I haven't seen it. So just thought on yeah. Wikipedia. So I don't watch, I haven't seen Legends of Tomorrow. So yeah. that kind of stuff I'm okay with. Like, you know. Yeah. That, well, because it's just right? kind of like, we're that's just, fiction. Yeah. you know, it's fiction. So, um, yeah. Yeah. The history channel. I, mean, I remember when history channel was like a history channel. I know. That was amazing. So it used to be so good. History and discovery and all those things. And then mm-hmm. it just became full of nonsense and reality shows. And yep. Like, just okay. all about the ratings, baby. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's Amelia Earhart. So. Yep. Links in the show notes for the National Geographic story. All about coconut crabs. The photo that we saw. 
And then we have the two Skeptoid links and then also Amelia Earhart's Wikipedia, which I did go in because I had some ideas about Amelia Earhart and her life uh, before she became a like world-renowned pilot is also pretty interesting. They don't talk about any of that in search of, and we didn't talk about any of that, but it is kind of interesting. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah, in search of, I mean, it's a very short show, but sometimes they, I mean, this one I felt like was very solidly done. I feel like they did a good job covering. Yeah, because they, the they had a they had a focus. And stuff. Yes, it felt very focused. Some of them, it doesn't feel like that. Some of them, it feels like they just kind of throw stuff out and they don't really know where to go, and then they leave all this stuff out, and you're like, well, you weren't doing anything else. Why weren't you talking about this? In this one, I feel like they probably didn't have time to squeeze in all that stuff. But yeah, it is fascinating. What I think is interesting is that the theories shown in this episode, with the exception of the crabs, are pretty much the same theories that exist now. Mm -hmm. But when you hear about them now, they are not associated with the people we saw in search of. They are associated with modern people who have taken on those ideas and scripted their own idea around them which i think is mm -hmm. interesting because like yeah. in ufos and ufo kind of stuff you usually still keep the connection with the original person and then other people yeah. build on it but you still hear that but these like the, the original people have sort of been washed away and other people have now it's now assigned to them and so i think that's interesting as well um, yeah that is sucks, interesting. but i mean not that any yeah. of the news we saw in, in search of were really anybody I would want to promote, honestly. But no, um, but yeah. it is weird how those ideas seem to have like been passed on to other people who then research mm -hmm. and find those conclusions and yeah, who add their own little twist them. to it. Yeah, yeah. well, because even like Jervis and uh, Gurner, their idea is basically the same, you know. But yeah. they each have their own little twist to it at the end, so. Jervis has his fantasy world that he's living in, I think. And then <laughs> Gurner thinks he's a way better, like, news person than he probably really is. So, yeah. 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 Anyway, that's Amelia Earhart. Yep. So, this actually turned out to be uh, a better episode than I thought. I was not, I didn't think it was going to be very good because I know I didn't have a lot to say about it. But I managed to find <laughs> a way around that. So, yay. Yeah. Yay. All right. Uh, we don't know how to end these. It's been three and a half months. I know. Months. I know. I'm like, wait, what do we uh, say? We, okay, we you know what? Something? Let's end it. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> we already ended it, Tori. Okay, sorry. It's over. All right. I Want to Rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded in collaboration with Black Cat and Orange Tuxedo Studios. Episode production design and editing is by Lazian Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz. And the truth is what we make of it by the agrarians. For now, this feed, our main feed, is where you can find all of our X-Files episodes and most of our X-Files adjacent bonus episodes, which cover television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files adjacent. If you like them, tell a friend. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us next Wednesday as we go in search of Dracula. Yay. And together we'll try to figure out if the, the truth, truth is, is still, still out there. there.
one episode Ooh, down. We Something did it up. after. Not too bad. Not got some too of the rust shabby. Off, moved the plastic from everything. I know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good for us. <laughs> All right, let's do another one. All right. <laughs>